I swear I haven't read that poem, looked at and all those feelings are coming up in me. I wrote that poem when I was about 30. She died when I was about 24, so six or seven years after she died. So I'm 30, now I'm 75, 76, so that's about 45 years later. That's bizarre. Being a mother's an attitude, not biology. An unknown writer once said, if you give me any three words, I'll write you a story about my mother. Story is in our DNA, and of course, so is she. We gathered stories from men and women in all walks of life. Stories about the ones we have, the ones we are, the ones we know. This includes stories about stepmothers, godmothers, grandmothers, birth moms, foster moms, the mom up the street. It includes stories about not being a mom and stories about mothering in other ways. No matter how you slice it, if it's not one thing, it's your mother. Hi everybody, I'm Lupe Padilla Mitchell. I'm a life coach of mothers and families and a mother of three adult daughters. I'm Katie Mitchell, actress, writer, storyteller, and mom of a teenage son. Hey guys, y'all are in for a treat today. Our guest is Jack Grapes. Jack is a lot of things. He's an actor, he's a poet, and he is one of the most respected, renowned writing teachers in Los Angeles. And he's just a barrel of fun. So Jack Grapes' episode is going to be a two-parter. The first part is a mother's poem. And the second part is going to have to do with how he inspires so many writers in Los Angeles. What you're going to hear today is um, part one. So we're going to go into his poem. This poem doesn't have a title, so I'm going to give it a title right now. It's called The Letter from My Mother. Last night, I got a letter from my mother. She's been dead for six years, maybe seven. I've forgotten. Perhaps it's just that what she had to say to me could be put in a letter six or seven years after she had quit saying all those things to me. Mom, you had nothing to say to me, nothing, absolutely nothing. And it's as hard for me to write this as it must be for you to hear it. There were times when it felt good just being in your arms, those loose, fleshy arms of yours. There were times when I needed you, taking a piece of straw from the old broom to tickle my face until I fell asleep or went crazy, scratching the part under my nose where it really tickled. I couldn't go to Daddy for money most of the time. He always wanted to know what for or why I really needed it, but he always gave it to me anyway, but with it, that sense of guilt. I could see in his eyes the edges of his dying he once had stood on and what a penny had meant those winters long before we knew him, but not you. And not that you were ever rich, you were just a soft touch. That's how badly you needed love. So maybe I owe you something after all. And of course, how can we forget that you spoke eight languages, including English, and you helped get Shale and me through French that year. And I'm sure Shale could have made it well enough without you. Maybe we all could have. It's a hard thing to say, Mom, because you did a lot of good things, but what were they? You knew how to be selfish and cruel though you were wounded like all of us, even with your eight languages and fleshy arms and five-dollar bills slipped to me under the table when Dad wasn't looking. But eight languages? God, Mom. Surely they taught you something. Eight languages. How could you know so many languages and not have a single thing to say to me? Somewhere in that French or German or Flemish or Dutch, wasn't there some language, even if I couldn't have understood what you were saying, 
Wasn't there one language you could have used? One lousy sentence, just one word. Wasn't there one language you could have used that would have reached out and said something? Were you deaf as well? Didn't you know anything about the world? How could you cross an ocean and not know there was more to life than the nonsense that fleshed up your petty rages? Or is this just your idea of a joke? I open the letter. I even thank the mailman. What must he think of me? I thank him for delivering the letter after so many years. And I bring the letter up to my room where my books and paintings are. And I open your letter and unfold your letter and unfold your letter. And I unfold and unfold until there's no more folds. Is this your idea of a joke? There's nothing. Nothing at all on that piece of paper. Mom, in six years, couldn't you have even made something up? That's beautiful. Wow, I haven't read that poem in so long. I, oh God, you think you're over something and then you realize you're not over it. I mean, you know, it's like the line in Shakespeare, what's Hecuba to him and he to Hecuba that he should weep so? And I'm thinking, what's my mother to me now and her to me? I mean, it's, you know, I'm 76 years old. What the fuck do I care about my mother anymore? I've done it, I've dealt with it all, it's over. And I haven't even read that poem to myself in God knows how many, well, it wasn't even, it's not even in my book. So why didn't I put it in the book? And I'm reading it again, and all those feelings are coming back to me. When I, when I read the line, your petty rages, I felt this rage inside of me. I mean, she used to slap me for anything. She called them in Flemish, plavai. A plavai was a slap in the face. And we could be walking down the street and, uh, you know, she's holding my hand. And all of a sudden, I don't know, there's something I did. I don't know what it was. She would pull me to her and start whacking me in the face. I'll teach you to do that. I'll teach you to do that. And she's whacking me and she's holding my hand. I can't get away from her. And in the house, she could blow up at anything. It, it, it didn't make any sense. And... You know, I could have friends over and she would start insulting them for nothing. Like, what are you insulting them for? But I've sort of forgotten all that. I, I haven't thought about my mom in that way. And I mean, when I think of her, I, I don't think of her. <laughs> I guess it's like the letter. She writes me a letter where she didn't make anything up. And when I think of her, I don't really think of her. But two of my best friends are... One's an analyst and the other is a psychotherapist. And they both, you know, we go out, we have a, an ice cream in Westwood, or we smoke a cigar or something. I, I see them infrequently. But they've all said, in a half-joking way, boy, you got mother issues. You should, you should explore that in therapy. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't need to. I'm, I'm not walking around going, there's something missing in my life. Or, right. or I don't know how to tolerate X, Y, and Z. Maybe if I deal with my mother issues, I'll be, a, I'll be a more actualized human being. I'm 77 years old. If I'm not actualized by now, forget it. <laughs> and, exactly. and so I'm done. I'm done with my mom. I, I'm, I'm done with her. And yet you were surprised how much feeling came up when you read that. Because you and I both looked at each other teary-eyed at the end of that poem and you were like oh my god I was not surprised I was shocked Shock. I was shocked because I'm not done with my mother right. but I I don't I don't want to go in it's enough it's enough mm -hmm. but at that moment 
when I wrote the poem, I probably felt that. Um, but reading it again after, I don't know, I wrote the poem 50 years ago. Yeah. That was the, one of the first poems I wrote when I came to Los Angeles. I, I remember that. And it was in my first little book called Termination Journal, which I never included in any of my later books, mm -hmm. collected poems, selected poems, because I didn't think it was a very good poem. Right. So I didn't think it was a very good poem. How about that? That's because you have mother issues. <laughs> Just to bring it back full oh. circle. Oh, maybe I, any of you know a good therapist? My wife is a, is a psychotherapist. Yeah, I was going to say, know. I know one who's very close. I believe someone's down the hall. But yeah. Well, the only, the only reason why I would explore that would be is if someone told me I'll, I'll, I'll get some good material. I was just going to say. I would do it for that. You know what moved me, though, was the boy you were when you wrote that. So in the, you might have also been touched by that boy. To, I mean, not to put words in your mouth. I was a young man. I would have been 20. Yeah, that young man, that 27-year-old man, 28-year-old yeah. man, which is a boy. Yeah. At our age, hey. looking back, you know. Um, I think that I was so moved by the boy man that wrote that poem in that moment. Yeah. And then I was doubly moved by you reading it and being moved, really. I just let you talk, and I just wow. sat there trying to get my shit together. Yeah. And, and I was moved by your being moved. <laughs> and Lupe is moved now, hearing you and I talk about being exactly, moved. Exactly, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I wrote a poem about my dad just about six months ago, and my dad drank. He was an alcoholic, and it was about a fishing trip that he would sometimes take me on with him where he would go with all his AA buddies and they would go on a boat out in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico and they would drink. And by the time we got back to shore, my dad was falling down drunk. And I was about 10 years old and he could barely make it to the car and he says to me, you'll have to drive. I'm 10 years old. I've, I don't know what drive a car means. You know, I couldn't even reach the brake, let alone the accelerator. And I'm driving us home and my, the main thing I'm worried about was, um, are we going to stop and he's going to drink some more? But the poem was me celebrating my father's getting drunk. And I was saying, God, he must have had a good time. And that's the refrain that keeps coming through that poem. Go ahead, Dad. Spray that Jim Beam all over your face. Get as drunk as you want. You must be having a great time. I want you to have a great time. But. The tone in the poem is ambiguous. Am I saying go for it with a kind of sarcasm? Like, go ahead, get drunk, ruin the family, create all these bad memories and all that stuff. So the poem teeters on the ambiguity. But at the same time, it's a really, it's a love poem to my father, who was the greatest man I ever knew. Not my mother. I don't have feelings for her. My brother confessed to me 10 years after she died that he, he was guilty, that he didn't feel sad about her dying. And I looked at him and I went, Carl, I don't feel any guilt at all. You shouldn't feel any guilt either, that you're not feeling any guilt. We did not have a connection with her. And I thought my brother was guilty for 10 years. And I didn't care that I didn't feel anything mm -hmm. because I didn't care. Because she hadn't earned it. She hadn't earned it. Boy. And now it's, I wrote that poem when I was about 30. She died when I was about 24. So six or seven years after she died. 
so I'm 30, now I'm 75, 76, so that's 40 years later, about 45 years later. I swear I haven't read that poem, looked at and all those feelings are coming up in me. That's bizarre. Have you always, when you were a child, did you, did you write? I have a few poems that talk about that, about what uh, turned me on to writing. Uh, I started writing seriously as a writer when I was 11, but I was writing before that when I read a poem. I, I think I talk about this in one of my prose pieces called It Was a Dark and Stormy Night, about me discovering the, the anonymous poem, uh, uh, The Purple Cow. I never saw a purple cow, I never hoped to see one, but I can tell you anyhow, I'd rather see than be one. I remember reading that poem on the floor, the living room floor of the, of the first house we lived in before we moved when I was six, and I was pretty electrified by that. Uh, the rhyme, certainly the rhyme, uh, there was something sweet about the rhyme, not just the end rhyme with cow, how, anyhow, but the inner rhyme of rather see than be one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That electrified me, but what also electrified me, and I, I, wasn't, um, I wasn't immune to the understanding of, of prejudice in the South when I was six. Right. My father was a big liberal. He was a Marxist. Um, I heard, I, I knew all that stuff was bad. I knew when I got on the bus and it said, you know, the, the little plaque midway down for colored only. And you had to, if you were, if you were, if you were African American, you had to sit behind that little sign. Mm -hmm. And I remember one day going back there and sitting back there and, and some white guy came over and said, son, you, you, you know, what, I was 10 taking the bus. Right. Son, you, you're supposed to sit over here. And I went, no, I want to sit here. And he had, he had a problem with that. He didn't force me, but he, he didn't know what to do. He, he, he thought I couldn't read or something. But I, I understood that. So in the poem, when it's, I never saw a purple cow, I never hoped to see one. Like, oh boy, seeing a purple cow, you don't even want to see a purple cow. But I never saw a purple cow, I never hoped to see one. But I can tell you, anyhow, I'd rather see than be one. I'd rather see than be one. Wow, that was the heart of prejudice. That was the, the, the start of bigotry. That was when we don't look into the human heart and see that we're all the same. Right. And that poem electrified me. You know, I remember today, I, I, here's what I remember. I was sitting on the floor and I remember feeling this wave of heat pass over me. And that feeling that I had, it wasn't me saying, I want to write a poem like that. Right. What I said in my mind was, I want to make other people feel what I just felt. So how can I do that? Will I draw? Will I paint a picture? Will I act? Will I, will I, act? Will I sing? No, I'll, I'll, I'll write little things and that will affect people. I wanted to affect people like that because I felt very alive. There was something about the collision of the sound of the words, which was pretty and, and had an emotional feel about it. Uh, the, the how, anyhow, you know, I never saw a purple cow. I never hoped to see one, but I can tell you anyhow, I'd rather see than be one. Yeah. So we got one and how. That was pretty. That was nice. 
But there was also that little stirring of an intellectual understanding that they had captured something about prejudice and bigotry in the South that even as a six-year-old, I was very, very aware of. Very aware of. Oh, and the visceral reaction you had to it just kind of blows my mind. It was totally visceral. It wasn't just intellectual. So I wanted to do things that would get people in the head and get yeah. people in the gut. And that's, that's why I started writing. But I really didn't start writing full-fledged until I was 11 when uh, my father got upset with me because all I read was comic books. I read all the Batman and little, little Lulu and Archie and, <laughs> yes. and, and Superman. I read all those comic books that are now, if I kept them, it would be worth a right, lot of money. Exactly. <laughs> um, I, and he, got to, he didn't want me reading all that trash. Right. So one day he came home and he gave me a copy of a book called uh, Time for the Stars by Robert Heinlein who was a very famous science fiction writer. Uh, he's the one who wrote Stranger in a Strange Land, which is a quote from, Ab from Abraham, you know, who was a stranger in a strange land. Um, but this book, Time for the Stars, was really a YA novel just for young kids. I was 11. And it had to do with time travel. And so if one of the twins went out in space at the speed of light, he wouldn't age as fast as the kid on Earth. Well... I found that to be fascinating. Yeah. So now I'm reading a book, and I'm reading a book. Uh, I had tried to read books by Charles Dickens that were maybe given me in class, and I, I just couldn't handle it. And the books were those old kind of leather-bound, not real leather, but fake leather, but on the, that paper that was wrinkly and brown. And, oh, man, I remember trying to read a, the first page of Tale of Two Cities, and I'm 11, what right. the hell am I going to get from that? And it was it was slow going. I read one page a night, and uh, I just couldn't do it. And all the books I had, Silas Marner. Yeah, I'm, I read it. It's yeah. a good book now, but I, 11 years old, Silas Marner. I'm going to read Silas Marner. And then he gives me this book that was so I was hooked. I became a reader. And then eventually he gave me a book. That was a Perry Mason novel. Oh. And then in the, in the book, it had a little pamphlet for the Walter J. Black Detective Book Club or Mystery Book Club, the Walter J. Black Mystery Book Club. And I sent off my $2, you know, cash. I got a $2 from my mom, and I sent it off. I joined the club, and I would get a book a month. And, of course, I read the book in, 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 a, in a less than a week. But I was reading Perry Mason. So then I started writing Perry Mason stories. Of course. You know, I remember my first story, The Butler Did It. No, but it was a trick because you, you, it's set up in such a way that you made to think, well, it couldn't be The Butler because The Butler does it in all those stories. Well, I made it The Butler. Then my second story called The Living Corpse. Okay, The Living Corpse. This, and each time I wrote them, I, I wrote them by hand, and then my father bought me a, a, a little portable typewriter, and I learned to type using a book called The Ruth Ben Ray Touch Typing Method. <laughs> and I got halfway through the book, and I said, screw it, I, I, I'm going to write. So I, I've never become a perfect touch typer, but I'm pretty good. And uh, I started typing up my stories, and this one was, and then I would draw pictures. So every time I wrote another novel, my goal 
was not to write a better novel, but to write a longer novel. So my first one was 25 pages, then it got to 50, then it got to 70. So each novel, I tried to have more pages. <laughs> that was better to you. Well, that was the better, idea. Better well, is longer. Well, I wanted, I, mean, it to be, I wanted it to be, well, let's not get into that. Yeah, let's not get into that. I just wanted it to be as thick as the books I was reading. Right. So the second one was called A Living Corpse. And of course, the murderer was the man who was killed because he wanted to get the insurance money, so he killed a, a, someone else, uh, like a tramp, and then they disfigured his body because he drowned. So when he was found, they thought it was him. So he gets, his wife gets the insurance money, and the two of them are going to abscond. But, of course, I invented... See, I was reading also a lot of Agatha Christie, and they're all English. So my character, my detective, was not the hard-boiled American detective. It was the British detective. So my guy was Inspector Peterson. And I would write on the cover of the, I'd make a little cover, the, an Inspector Peterson murder mystery. <laughs> oh, God. Jesus. But, but when I finally got to 250 pages, I was, I was done. And by now I'm in the eighth grade, and I started writing better stories. Right. And then the stories got shorter and shorter because I, I didn't care anymore about how long they were, and it was a lot of work. Yeah. I didn't want to write 300 pages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they got 100 pages, then 50, then 30, then 20. And by the time I graduated from high school, I was writing vignettes. Remember vignettes? Kind they, of. they call it flash fiction now. So I was writing Gosh, vignettes, which yeah. was like two pages. Short, a short, a short, short, short story. A short, short, short story. And by Ooh. the time I got to college, what was the next step from a vignette? A two-page prose piece, poetry. And so once I got to college, it it it, it was all poetry. Let's that's talk. a long story. No, it's fantastic. No, that's a great story. <laughs> so you've been writing for a really long time, and you started young. And I love that the. Um, Purple cow, and now it. it I, I I'm not going to be able to see, I'm prejudiced in a, a different way or be able to explain it any better than that. That's. I mean, that's. Thank you. That was. That was like one of those gifts I, I got today. Thank you. And I could see your father's influence in your writing. Where was your mother's influence in growing you as a writer? My mother was not an intellectual person. She was not a read person. She was not very cognizant. Um, she was charming, and she was uh, effusive and passionate. But her influence on me was perhaps unconscious in the sense that I think I am a little like my mother in terms of being charming and passionate and being effusive. Uh, whenever my friends would come over, if they would knock on the door during dinner time, she would say, oh, pull up a chair, have, you know. And then she would say, you want to stay for dinner? And they would, yeah. And then she would go to the freezer and get a steak and cook a steak. So she was very, you know, outgoing like that. But she was not someone that ever, 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 ever spoke to me on a deeper level, either emotionally or intellectually. And as I got older, I had less respect for her because it was my father who really gave me that sense of a uh, larger sense of the universe, both politically and intellectually. My dad was a reader. My dad was a, a reader. He read during the Depression when he was a young boy. Uh, you had no place to sleep, so where did you go? 
you would go to the library. And he would spend his days in the library. When they would close at night, he had to go out. But like many, quote, hobos of that time, and my father was a a hobo. He rode the rails, so to speak. So did my grandfather. Yep, just like, you know, like Jack Dempsey, that kind of thing. My dad uh, boxed a little to uh, make money, and he also had stories of giving blood in order to get enough money to find a place to sleep for the night or, or to buy a beer. And that was a real, not romantic, but scary thing for me to imagine that about my father. Mm -hmm. But he had such an influence on me in terms of a social uh, consciousness, but also intellectual. He knew books. He read a lot of books. And I remember once I was reading something in Karl Marx, and he said, that's not a good translation. I said, what do you mean? He said, "Uh, the word he's using there is wrong. It should be integuments. And I said, what's integuments? He said, well, you know, it's the in the womb. It breaks out of the womb. So here he is arguing about a translation. Wow. So Jack Grapes? Yes, Katie Mitchell. (laughs) We're going to pause right here and continue this on the next episode because Jack has so much to offer us about how to reach that deeper place inside from which to tell our own stories. And here's a preview of Jack Grape's part two episode. You've got to convince people that the story doesn't matter. And what matters is the truth of your deep voice, not your entertaining voice, not your voice that you're trying to sound interesting. And that's what most writers do when they write their stories. They come from a voice that's very chit-chatty or Oh, listen to my story. I got a great story. It began one stormy night, and oh, I'm going to have a lot of fancy words. I learned in one writing class you have to have a conflict, so I'm going to have a conflict. Like, if you write from your deep voice, there won't be a conflict. Your whole life is a conflict. It's a conflict trying to figure out who the hell you are and why you are here and what your purpose is and that love will find you even when you stop looking for it. That's our show. Take care. Bye-bye. And to find out more about our writers, go to our website, Instagram, or Twitter. If it's not one thing, it's your mother. And that's the number one, not the word one. Want to do something to help us? Go wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review us. Five stars would be nice. You can say something complimentary. Because you know what? It really does help other people find our show. And also share us with a friend because word of mouth is the best compliment.